Today we are launching uh, our fall series, which we've entitled Ecclesia, Rediscovering Spirit-Formed Community. And I would like to begin today with this short video, because I think it'll help set up where we want to we wanna go this morning. Tired of having to wake up, get dressed, and drive across town just to attend your favorite service? Introducing Virtual Reality Church. Start by choosing a church building that meets your needs. Tired of the stress of having to choose a Sunday morning outfit? Never make a fashion mistake again, because Virtual Reality Church will style you based on your denomination. Not a people person? Select the introvert experience to completely eliminate the welcome team, meet and greet time, connect cards, and that awkward hold hands with the person next to you thing we still do. Next, personalize your morning by choosing the worship experience that you want. Feeling a touch of white guilt? Add a minority worship leader. Custom options even let you tailor the skinniness of your worship leader's jeans. Finally, no more having to endure songs that you don't like. With Virtual Reality Church, you're in charge. For the sermon, choose the amount of conviction you like and we'll select a pastor for you. We'll even let you tailor your sermon topics so you'll never have to attend a Vision Sunday or a sermon series on giving. And never worry again about dozing off during the sermon. With Virtual Reality Church, you can sleep as long as you want. Kids being bad in nursery? Who cares? Worried about missing a football game? Enter your favorite team and we'll provide notifications when the game is starting. Never miss a kickoff again. Want to go forward for prayer? Well, if you selected a Pentecostal service, always stand in front of a mattress. Even connect your social media accounts and we'll post for you. Get credit for being super spiritual all from the comfort of your couch. Finally, an option for people asking the question, how can I make Sunday morning even more about me? Virtual Reality Church, the future of church attendance. Of course, what this video is humorously addressing is the drift away from Jesus' intention for his church. When we say the word church, there are many ideas that can come to mind. We think of an organization, and while it's true we're organized, we're not an organization. Social club. Well, we are social. We, we focus on relationships and on fellowship and socialization, these are important priorities for the church, but we're not a social club. Another idea is a building. We meet in buildings, but we are not a building. In fact, the church continues to exist in the absence of a building. If we no longer had a building, our church would not be destroyed. We would just meet somewhere else. Church is not a place we go. It's not a program. We run programs to help us accomplish our purpose, but the church is not a program. And it's not a Sunday morning service. And while that seems to be the biggest emphasis and focus as, as part of a community and we hold services, the church can't be limited to a service. Now, we chose this series because we believe the church, Big C, not just ours, Big C in many ways, has lost its identity. We struggle to know who we are. We struggle to know why we're even here, why we even gather. We struggle to know what our purpose is because there are so many conflicting ideas and opinions about what the church is and should be. I would suggest this morning that if you consider Scripture, you'll notice that the church is a community of spirit-formed followers of Jesus. 
And these spirit form followers of Jesus are participating together to build the kingdom of God and fulfill Jesus' mandate to make disciples. The church is a community that is filled with the Spirit, that is led by the Spirit, that is empowered by the Spirit, that is formed by the Spirit. And so when we embrace this understanding, then we will become the church that, that Jesus intended and we'll accomplish the mandate that Jesus has given. As we reflected on this series, the church in the book of Acts, we believe, is an excellent model of what spirit-formed community looks like. And so over the course of this fall, we'll be considering some of the priorities or characteristics or evidences of a spirit-formed church that we can see and based on the book of Acts. Now, in the New Testament, the name for church is ecclesia, ecclesia. And literally uh, translated, it means summon to assemble. Now, originally, this term was not reserved for the spiritual community. It was a secular terminology. Ecclesia was used in the context of calling citizens of a city or a community together, and they would have regular urgent and urgent meetings for the purpose of making decisions, of changes, to uh, bringing in laws, to appoint people to positions, for people to have an opportunity to establish policies and so on. That's where it came from. Every citizen had a right to speak and to vote, and to be a part of this community. Ecclesia held the idea of citizenship, community, ownership, empowerment, responsibility within a community. And so as you likely know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek, and some Aramaic scattered in there. But at the time of the New Testament, most of the Jews could no longer read the ancient Hebrew or speak it. The language had been lost to them. And so since the common language spoken at this time was Greek, the necessity arose to translate the New Testament into Greek. And so the the Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. Now, interestingly, the Greek word used in the Septuagint for the nation of Israel is ecclesia. Because it, it, they were a, uh, you know, a people who were spirit-formed, created in a spirit-formed community. And their purpose was to accomplish God's purposes, God's plans for them, and to impact the world around them. And so this word was chosen to reflect on Israel. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus first used this word when he's talking to his disciples and he says to them, upon this rock, the rock that he is the focus, the center, that he was going to build his church, his ecclesia. That's the word Jesus used. Now Luke also uses this word to describe the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts because they too are a spirit-formed community for the intent purpose of accomplishing God's purposes and promises for themselves, 
but also for the nations around them. The first priority, the first characteristic, the first evidence of spirit-formed community that we're going to consider in the book of Acts in this series, this morning we'll begin with, is Christ-centered teaching. Now, our scripture was read a little earlier by Wayne, and thank you for that, Acts 4 to 12. Now, I want to say that unlike most weeks, usually the scripture that's read is the specific text for that sermon, but this morning it's going to be a little different because this is one of many examples in the book of Acts, and I just wanted to have one example read of, of, to demonstrate what Christ-centered teaching looked like in this spirit-formed community. We're going to start today by looking at Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching. Luke and Acts, two volumes, one record. Acts being the sequel to Luke. In volume one, Gospel of Luke, Luke records the account of Jesus' life and ministry empowered by the Spirit. Volume two, it's Acts of the Apostles. Luke records the account of the life and ministry of the followers of Jesus empowered by the the Holy Spirit as they carry on the ministry that Jesus began. In the early church, Luke Acts would be, would be circulated in two scrolls that would travel together to a, to a churches. And, and later when the New Testament canon was put together as we know it today, these two volumes were separated and John sits right there in the middle. I guess it seemed like a good idea at the time. Since the gospel of Luke sets the pattern of Jesus' ministry that the followers will carry on, when he leaves, it's important to start by considering the teaching ministry of Jesus. What did that look like? I think a best example is to look near the end of Luke's gospel, where we have the story of two disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's resurrection day. They're walking home. They're talking about everything that has taken place. They're trying to make sense of it. They don't really understand it. They're wrestling. And while they're walking, we're told that Jesus came alongside, but they didn't know it was him. And so he asked them, he says, you know, you know, he comes up and says, you know, what you doing? What are you talking about? And they begin to share with him as if he has no knowledge of what's taken place about the crucifixion and this confusing report of the women that Jesus is alive and they don't know what to do with all of this. And in Luke 24, 19, they, they made a statement as they're reflecting on the ministry of Jesus, and this is what they said. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. Now, this is a very important statement in understanding the teaching ministry of Jesus. It's important for uh, followers after him to understand this, and it's also important for us today to understand what that means. It's important to begin with to define what is meant by the word prophet because we have so many different understandings of this term and, and even today we have movements where people are claiming that they are, they are prophets and so what do we, what do we, how do we understand this verse and what does it mean for us? Simply put, a prophet is someone who speaks the words of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. Someone who speaks the words of God empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's also important to note that Jesus' prophetic ministry was defined in terms of words and deeds. 
speech, and action. Jesus began his public ministry as a teacher, as a rabbi, and we see this in Luke 4, but he's more than a teacher. He's a prophet because he's speaking the words of God empowered by the Spirit. And in Luke 4, when we read that account, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He has just read Isaiah 61. And so when we look in Luke 4, Jesus said, after he finished it, these words are fulfilled before your eyes in me today. In other words, I'm who this scripture is talking about. The Holy Spirit had anointed him to preach and proclaim. But also to release captives, to heal the blind, and to set people free. Preach and proclaim that those were mighty, that's where he'll be mighty in words. Releasing, healing, and setting people free, mighty indeed. So the key point is this. You can't view words and deeds in Jesus' teaching ministry as two different separate aspects. They are linked. They go together. They are inseparable. And we see examples of this all throughout Luke's account. Just quickly in Luke 4, later on, or when, when you know, Jesus is teaching, all of a sudden in the midst of them there is a demon-possessed man. And in the middle of Jesus' teaching, he sets this man free. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching in a house. We're told that the power of the Lord is there to heal. In other words, the Holy Spirit is moving in this house and this paralytic man is lowered through the roof and in the middle of the teaching, Jesus pauses to heal this man. In Luke 7, the messenger from John the Baptist is sent to Jesus to say, we just want to know for sure if you're the Messiah. And if you look at Jesus' response, he says, listen, go back and tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Both word and deeds. Jesus' teaching ministry and Jesus' miracles went hand in hand. They're not separate ministries. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. Secondly, the disciples' teaching. In Acts 1.8, prior to Jesus' ascension to the Father, he had a request of his followers, and he said, I want you to wait in Jerusalem, and if you do, the promise that is made is that you're going to experience the empowering of the Holy Spirit that will make you effective witnesses. And so in Acts 2.4, we read that they waited and the Holy Spirit was poured out as promised and the followers of Jesus were empowered by the Spirit. Just as Jesus was empowered by the Spirit at the beginning of his ministry, now the followers of Jesus are empowered by the Holy Spirit at the beginning of their ministry as they are now given the task of carrying on what Jesus started. Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed, and now the Holy Spirit, now Jesus' followers, by way of the Holy Spirit, become now a community of prophets, not just one, but a community of prophets that are mighty in word and deed. Because they too, all of them, are going to speak the words of God empowered by the Spirit, and they, through their ministries, are going to see miraculous things. Now, we need to remember 
that the New Testament was not written as we know it today in the book of Acts. There was no Bible. So when Peter stood up, he couldn't say, I'd like you to turn with me to, you know, Ephesians chapter 4. There was no Ephesians chapter 4 in a Bible as we know it today. Most of the teaching of the apostles was focused on who Jesus is and the life and ministry of Jesus, his teachings. And so we see examples of their preaching in the book of Acts. We, in Acts 2, we see people are coming by on the day of Pentecost and they're confused by what's going on. They don't understand, so they just assume something inappropriate is happening and Peter preaches to them about Jesus, and it's not a bad day. 3,000 people are saved. In Acts chapel, chapter 3, the crippled beggar is healed, and that's the scripture that leads up to what we read this morning. And the people are amazed that this crippled beggar is healed, and so Peter from there begins to preach to them about Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 4, when the Sanhedrin asks, well, why did you do that, and in whose name did you do it? Peter once again preaches about Jesus. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is confronting the religious Jews, he's preaching a sermon about Jesus when they kill him. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching about Jesus in Athens among all of these gods that everybody is worshiping. The point is this, when you read their sermons, they all follow a similar pattern. They're Christ-centered. Jesus and him crucified and risen from the dead. Their teaching was often historic, linking the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures, trying to show those who were there who were Jews that Jesus was indeed the long-awaited Messiah and that his ministry was a reflection of that. Their intent was to show that the Messiah had come. Their teaching, the, the apostles, their teaching was a combination of instruction about Jesus and a call to make a commitment to become a follower of Jesus. We're told in Acts 2 in the summary passage that signs and wonders were a common ongoing part in the teaching of the apostles because they too had become a group of spirit-empowered prophets. Just as Jesus was a prophet mighty in word and deed, now his followers, empowered by the Spirit, carry on his ministry as prophets, mighty in word and deed as well. So we see the pattern. This was Jesus. We see his followers following in that exact pattern. And then, of course, today, what does that mean for us? The so what question is very, very important for us today. I mentioned earlier, as a church, we are a community of spirit-formed followers of Jesus. And we're participating together to build the kingdom of God and fulfill Jesus' mandate to make disciples. That's simply who we are. But I want us to focus on two aspects of the church this morning. I want to begin with the church gathered. The church gathered. There are some trends that I believe threaten Jesus' intention for his church. The first is, picking up from the video we watched earlier, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. With technology, with podcasts, with books, with worship music that's available, you can have 
you know, the top 10 church experience at home. You just pick the best preacher and the best music and, and the best everything, and you can make yourself that church that everybody longs for, the best of everything. And there's that trend where I don't need to come to church because I can get all the elements of church from home. That's the first misconception that I believe threatens the church. The second is that worship music and production and environmental experience when we gather has in many places become more important than the preaching of the word, than the mission that we are called to when the church gathers. And so there are churches that are very worship-driven, very music-driven, very atmosphere-driven, and the priorities are the technology and the lights and the smoke and whatever. I had a colleague that I, that I talked to a number of years ago, and of course on my business card it has my name and it just says lead pastor. He showed me his. It had his name and it said, it said, it said atmosphere, atmospheric architect. And I'm thinking... What's that? What's that? I'm thinking, if I don't understand what that is, yeah, you try handing that to someone that you're, you're inviting to come to your church. Yeah, Oh, you just met the atmospheric uh, you know, architect. Because he saw as his job to create, to build an environment of experience that when people came in, where all the senses are being focused on, that this would just give them this, this experience. Production can be a priority that takes the focus away from the main priority. Thirdly, individualism has created a church culture of feel-good talks, emphasis on attracting people to attend by promising people to give them what they think they want. So for a while, it was Starbucks coffee until those churches figured out that there's another place people can get Starbucks coffee without going to church. Starbucks. Individualism, focusing on what people want, what we think people want, so that we can get people to come. Program-driven ministry. Offering programs that meet the needs. There are people who want to come in and see the hundred list checklist of which ones I want. It's kind of like, you know, when you're going to the wedding and you can choose your meal and you can mix and, you know, I want that appetizer and that, you know, it's an all-inclusive meal. And you can pick your appetizer, your main and your dessert and you're just kind of going all over. And that comes out of individualism by promising people what they think we think they're looking for program-driven ministry to, to try to do things that people want rather than serving the mission and mandate. And on top of that, being a minimal commitment to church. We don't want you to have to commit too much. We don't want to ask too much of you because we, we don't want to scare you away. A fourth challenge is a disengagement with the surrounding community. That church becomes so much focused on what happens inside a building for the people that are regulars in the building that, that the understanding is that people are welcome to come and there's an expectation that they're going to find their way in here instead of the church engaging with the community as we go out. Now these approaches, these attitudes conflict with Jesus' intention for his church and the true understanding of Ecclesia. And Christ-centered teaching realigns improper thinking at
attitudes in living. And that's why I think coming together is one of the most significant things because we are outside these doors all week long and there is thinking and values and priorities and opinions that we are bombarded with that we begin to take onto ourselves that begin to shape who we are and how we think and how we raise our families and how we spend our money and how we do our jobs. And then we gather in a place like this and we are reminded through our worship and the preaching that Jesus is the focus, that the kingdom of God is priority, and that in the kingdom you can't live like that. And it realigns us so that when we go back out, otherwise if we miss for extended periods of time, it's like by the time we, we get exposed to truth, we're so far off the path, we can hardly get back on. Christ-centered teaching is practical. It's challenging. It's uncompromising. It's scripture-based. It confronts individual individualism. It's grace-infused. It's love-driven. It's life-changing. And it leads to genuine discipleship. If we're not committed to practical, challenging, uncompromising, spirit-based, Christ-centered teaching that confronts individualism and is grace-infused and love-driven and life-changing, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to be changed by the Spirit. We're not going to have a strong foundation. We're going to be ineffective in our mandate of making disciples because church has become something different than Jesus attended, intended because Christ-centered teaching has been compromised. We are empowered as a community of believers to speak the message of Jesus, the good news, the gospel, empowered by the Spirit. So the truth is, we too are a community of prophets. Evangel Pentecostal Church is a community of prophets. And as a community of prophets, we should model the ministry of Jesus and the early church, and our ministry must be mighty in both word and deeds. We should never be satisfied as a community with the mere passing of information, but should long for the transforming power of the Holy Spirit as he works in our midst and in our lives. The intent of Christ-centered teaching is transformation, not information. I'm not here today so that you receive information you didn't have before and can leave and say, I have, now I know things I didn't know before. I hope that happens, but that's not the goal. The goal is not information. The goal is transformation. That as we hear the truth, we're changed. We're changed. And when we gather as a community, Christ-centered teaching creates an environment where people can be encouraged and challenged and held accountable and saved and healed and set free as Christ-centered teaching goes forward. Christ-centered teaching creates an environment where hope rises, where faith is built, where the marginalized are elevated, and the arrogant and the proud are humbled. Christ-centered teaching creates an environment where the Spirit can move freely and the miraculous can happen. Christ-centered teaching creates an environment where followers of Jesus are equipped to carry out the mandate of making 
disciples. Folks, when we gather, we need to come ready and expecting the Holy Spirit to create an environment where Christ-centered teaching is powerful in both word and deed. We don't come thinking, oh, I hope it's so-and-so leading worship today. Oh, I hope they sing this song. Oh, I hope it's such-and-such preaching. Oh, I hope they talk about this. No, we come expecting and, and participating and cooperating with the Holy Spirit so that he can accomplish the purposes of God in the room for that time that we have to gather and meet so that God by his Spirit can move mighty in word and deed. Secondly, I think we're moving along pretty good. The church scattered. It was important for us to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ-centered teaching as being both for the community when we gather, which is the meeting place, but it's also important for us to understand it in terms of individuals as we scatter to the marketplace. It happens in the meeting place, but it happens in the marketplace. In Matthew 28, Jesus commanded his followers to make disciples. This is not possible without Christ-centered teaching. The same Holy Spirit that works mighty in word and deed when we gather and we proclaim the good news about Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that empowers us as individual followers of Jesus to proclaim the good news about Jesus when we scatter. Sometimes Christ-centered teaching is communicated with our mouths, with our words. But folks, make no mistake, more often than not, Christ-centered teaching in our individual lives is communicated with our lives. Our actions, our attitudes, our responses, our kindness, our compassion, our grace, our love. What we do communicates Christ-centered teaching so much more than our words will ever have an opportunity to do. As I look on the ministry of Jesus, is there such a thing as which miracle was greater than another? Probably not. They're all pretty great. But as I look at them, I think, Is feeding 10,000 people with that little lunch the greatest? Is walking on the water the greatest? Was delivering a demon-possessed man the greatest? I don't know, but as I wrestle it personally, I look at it and I say, you know what? In my opinion, the greatest miracles in the ministry of Jesus took place when he loved the unlovable, when he welcomed the rejected, when he went to the forbidden places and elevated the forbidden people. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. And I believe we need to set out each and every day of our lives as followers of Jesus, determined, determined to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us in the words that we communicate and the actions we portray in a way that reflects the ministry and message of Jesus. It might be encouragement that you find yourself somewhere where there is someone needing encouragement. And let me tell you, you don't have to go very far to find someone who needs encouragement. You probably only have to look to your left or your right right now. And there's an opportunity for us as the Spirit leads us to walk into the life of someone who needs encouragement that doesn't know Jesus and to encourage them and love them 
Sometimes we think that the Holy Spirit and his gifts only function in the, in the, in the, in the, when the church is gathered, but that's not true. As you're talking to your neighbor or your coworker or someone that you're, you, you're, you're, you're meeting and they're sharing with you realities of their lives, the Holy Spirit gives you wisdom in those moments to know what to say and how to respond. It might be a visit. It might be showing hospitality of bringing someone into your home or taking something to someone's home in their time of need. It might be valuing the marginalized people, treating them as important. We serve a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit, making us prophets, mighty in word and deed carrying on what he began in his name. I mean, how exciting is that? Like, think about it. How exciting is that? That you can know Jesus and be empowered by his spirit and be someone who brings good news and love and release and care to a a broken and hurting world. How exciting is that? Is anyone excited about that? (laughs) Other than Phil? (laughs) That's exciting, folks. But we lose sight of that because we become so focused on all the other aspects that we believe are primary in the church community. Let's not miss that point. We are spirit-empowered followers of Jesus who get the opportunity to build the kingdom of God, to live the kingdom of God, and to make disciples. It's exciting. And at the heart of that is Christ-centered teaching, truth. And in fact, if we do it any other way, because you can't bring people into community by bribing them with the freebies that they are, they're offered if they come. You may have noticed in the news, I don't know if you did, I don't like to mention evangelists, but because he's confessing himself, I'll name him. But Benny Hinn just came out and said, listen, I went down the road of prosperity gospel. It was the wrong road. I erred. I'm changing my ways. I'm not sure if he's going to give people four times what he took. I don't know. That's between him and Jesus. But at least he's acknowledging that, hey, he said, and he's made this statement, how can you put a price, a price on the gospel? That if you give, this is what you will get. How can you put a monetary price on it? You can't. It's the truth of Jesus is the means of bringing people into the kingdom. And nothing more. And nothing more. I'm going to invite our worship team to come back as we wrap it up. Jesus was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. His disciples, empowered with the same spirit, became prophets, mighty in word and deed. And here we are as his followers today, empowered by the same Holy Spirit. And we too are prophets, mighty in word and deed. The church is a community of spirits formed followers of Jesus. 
And we are participating together to build the kingdom of God and fulfill Jesus' mandate of making disciples. Let me tell you, other things are a lot easier to do than that. And that's why so many times we make the mistake of chasing those things because it's an easier path, but it's not the path we're called to. We are a church community that is filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, and formed by the Spirit. And it's only when we under, embrace this understanding will we be able to be the church that Jesus intended, accomplishing the mandate that Jesus has given. Christ-centered teaching is central in spirit-formed community. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. And you say, Pastor, why, why do you think it's such an urgency that the church rediscover? Let me tell you something. Statistically, the only part of the world where Christianity is growing is in the Southern Hemisphere. Nowhere else. Any growth that's happening in North America is primarily recirculating people from one congregation to another with a, with a handful of people that are coming to faith new, but very minimal. But in the Southern Hemisphere, Christianity is growing leaps and bounds. And one of the reasons I believe that we're in the danger place we are in is because we have lost an understanding of what it means to be the church to be followers of Jesus. It's critically important that we regain that understanding and try to, to regain something of what's been lost in the culture that we're living in, in the times that we live in. We can't hang on to where we've gone and expect to see something different. We have to realign back to God's intention in his word. So it starts with repentance in the church so that we can be the church. This morning, I'm going to invite our prayer team to come. Our worship team is going to lead us. And if you're here this morning, we want to pray for you for whatever your need is. That's one of the beauties of spirit form community, that you are a part of us. You, we're all a part of each other. And when one suffers, we all suffer. And we want to pray with you and encourage you. And if there's not a need that you want prayer for this morning, I want you to think about what we've talked about today and how that might reflect on your life, your attitude, your focus, your priorities as we move forward.